The passage that we're considering here this afternoon now comes from the Gospel of John, right? So we're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the New Testament, and we are going to read from a passage that is well-known to many Christians, is the passage where Jesus says, you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to read from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and then together we're going to confess just one question answer from a document that we've been considering, and as we consider, or as we have considered over the last number of months, as we will consider in the future, an extended series on a document that has been um, a teaching instrument in the life of many churches, the Heidelberg Catechism, faithful summary of the Christian faith. So what I'm going to do first is I am going to read from John chapter 3, just the first eight verses. So join with me now, if you would. Let's draw our attention to these words. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... Now, by water, commentators are a little bit divided on this, whether it's referring to the water of baptism or, as I, as I would side with the other group, that it's referred to the water of washing. And I'll demonstrate that in just a moment through another text I'm going to cite. But Jesus, truly I say to you, lest one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We're going we're gonna to cite question answer 8 of the Catechism in just a moment, but have, do you notice this if, if you read your Bibles and you read particularly from either the Gospel of John or the Epistles of John, and there are three epistles or letters of John, just how simple the, the words are, and yet the concepts that John brings to the table are really quite profound. They're not simplistic, all right? But anyway, Jesus says here, we have to be born again. That connects us now to question and answer eight of the Heidelberg Catechism. So let's do this. I'll read the question, and then together let's give the answer, right? But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Let's say together, yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So... Here at Pathway, what we like to do is we want to use our afternoon services more as kind of teaching services. So, um, the operative, well, that's fine, just leave it there. The operative word, what we just confessed together from the Hutterberg Catechism was that word regenerated. I'm going to ask you, and put you a little bit on the spot, raise your hand if you know what that word regenerated means. 
Come on, just go ahead. Okay. All right, we have... Okay, so you know what this reminds me of? This is very interesting. When I teach the orientation course, and then when I teach the catechism, I'm not assuming anything. I'm not assuming that, that people are totally unaware. I'm not also assuming that we just know everything. And I especially am jealous for, these, for this afternoon service to teach our children too. So when I, when I go through the Heidelberg with you in the Bible passages, um, I try to be as, not simplistic, but as simple and clear as I can so we all understand the very basics of the faith in this document of the Catechism and even more importantly in the Bible. So some of us know what regenerated means, some of us don't. So let me explain simply. Um, the word regenerated is, is a term like if a guy goes to seminary, a man goes to seminary to study for the ministry, he, he learns in what's called his doctrinal courses what regeneration is. And the word regeneration is not only a theological term, a doctrinal term, but it is, it is a, a biblical term. That, he, that means it's found in the Bible. For instance, I'll give you an example of that. In Titus 3, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says, For you were saved not on the basis of deeds done in righteousness, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. The cleansing of regeneration. And that's why when I was talking to you early while we were reading about where Jesus talks about one is born of water and the Spirit. The Spirit's work in our life is one of washing us clean, washing us new, and giving us life. Jesus uses a word or words that are synonymous with regeneration, and that is rebirth. Jesus says, you must be born again. When he says that, he's saying the same thing as regeneration. He said, you need to be regenerated. But what? But you may be saying, well, Pastor, you haven't even explained what regeneration is, Right? Uh, or rebirth. We're going to get to that in just a moment, okay? Before we do, what I want to do is I want to, as I oftentimes do in preaching, you oftentimes hear me say, let's put it in the context, right? Because you want to understand, if you're going to understand text, you have to look at the surrounding verses, the context, okay? So here's what's going on. We, we read in the beginning of this passage that there is a man who's called, um, he's a ruler of the Jews, he's a teacher, and he's one of authority, he's a ruler of a local worship uh, a place of worship for the Jews called the synagogue. His name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Now, kids, if you're listening to this, here you have this important man, and he comes to Jesus, but he comes at night. Why would he do that? And the reason why Jesus comes at night is because he doesn't want to be seen by other Jews. Because there are many Jews that don't like Jesus. In fact, they hate Jesus. But something's going on with Nicodemus. And he's fascinated with Jesus and so Nicodemus says to Jesus at night, secretly, says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God. Because no one can do the signs that you do, these miracles that you do, unless God is with him. Now, there's, there's a lot of people today like Nicodemus who I would call them curious. I would call them fascinated with Jesus. And maybe, maybe they even got a Bible in their hands and they're reading about the life and the ministry and the miracles of Jesus and they're going, wow, 
there's these people who are demon-possessed, and Jesus frees them. And, and wow, these are people who are dead, and Jesus frees them. He brings them back to life, and he heals lepers and blind and lame and deaf people and all of that. So they're fascinated by what they hear regarding Jesus. Now, the reason why I say that, and the reason why I assert that Nicodemus is at least, doesn't say he has true faith in Jesus, but at least he's fascinated with Jesus because of what we read earlier, just before chapter 3. Just want you to listen to this. Verse uh, 23. Many believed in Jesus' name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. In other words, what it's saying is many kind of placed a what we call a fascination faith in Jesus. Like, Oh, yeah, he's something great because of the miracles that they saw. But the past says, oh, yeah, but Jesus knew their heart. He knew that true faith wasn't living in them. They were just fascinated with him, right? Well, that was Nicodemus. So what do we see with Nicodemus? Nicodemus says to Jesus, we believe that, that you're doing what you're doing, right, because God is with you. And then what we read is this. Jesus says, and he, and he understands the heart of Nicodemus. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, no one can enter into the kingdom of God. And basically, Jesus saying is, no one can submit to the will of God and live for God unless, unless he is born again. Nicodemus is listening to this, and he's thinking to himself, and he, he says, I... I don't get this. And then he actually says to Jesus, um, okay, you have to be born again, but how is it, how, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, right? And we listen to this, and we go, like, why isn't he getting it? In fact, later on in the passage, Jesus says, um, you're a teacher, Nicodemus, in, what we, in modern day language. He said, Nicodemus, you're a teacher, you're an academic, and you're not getting what I'm saying? And he doesn't. What's the problem with Nicodemus? Is he just not bright? Well, obviously he's bright, otherwise he wouldn't be in the position of being a ruler in a synagogue. What was the problem with Nicodemus? The problem wasn't first and foremost with his intellect, but with his level of discernment and understanding. He's not discerning, he's not getting what Jesus is saying, because, man, his heart is dull, and his eyes are blind, and He's blind and he's dull because he's not born again. Well, all right, now, what does it mean to be born again? The word in the original language, kids, for born again is going to sound funny to you. It's the word anaganao, anaganao. Two words, ana, which can be translated as again, or ana, above. And ganao means to beget or to be born. And so when Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need to be born again, he says you need to be born from above. In other words, you need to be given life from above. And where does that life come from? It comes from what we call doctrinally the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Kids, what do you think of when you think of the Holy Spirit? When you think of the Holy Spirit, think of someone who is very personal but also very powerful. Remember two things always in connection with the Holy Spirit. 
And moms and dads, ask your kids on the way home. See if they're listening to this. What did the pastor say about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a source of two things. Power. Power and life. Life and power. Parents, ask your kids on the way home. Power and life. Okay? In fact, when you and I confess one of the other creeds that embrace the basics of our faith called the Nicene Creed, we say that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. So those two things, power and life. So here, this is a teaching session, right, in our afternoon service. Here are four fundamental truths. You and I, in of ourselves, don't have power in life. In fact, the Bible says and this is sometimes hard for people to embrace when they're first exploring the Christian faith, the Bible teaches us that spiritually we are dead. We're dead in the water. Second fundamental truth is we need to come alive. Third fundamental truth is that we can't give ourselves life. Why? Because we're dead in the water. Just like kids, when, if, if you have a person who is right here on the floor and that person is dead... And I talk to that person, I say, get up, get up, come to life. Are they going to be able to respond? No. Why? Because they're dead, right? That's why someone has to give them what we call CPR, that is, they have to breathe life into them. Then if they come alive, they can say, well, I came to life, not because I decided to come to life, but somebody breathed life into me. I was dead before. Where does that life come from? comes from above. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Let me give you just, give us a little bit of a mental break here. Let me give you an example of that. Years ago, um, is about, where is it now? Probably about 35 years ago, Joy and I moved to Montreal to work in a harbor ministry there. And it was my job, this is before seminary, it was actually our job to run this hospitality center. And as part of that ministry, I had the job every day of picking up seafarers or sailors who would come to Montreal and they would dock in the harbor of Montreal. And when you think of a harbor, maybe you think of a, a city next to an ocean, and they do have that. But, but actually, uh, Montreal is um, right next to, or flows through it, the uh, St. Lawrence River, right? So... So seafarers or sailors would come from all over the world, and they would come in uh, to Canada from the ocean, and then they would go down the St. Lawrence Seaway eventually and come into Montreal, and they would dock there. And I would have to pick them up and bring them to the hospitality center, and we provided them all kinds of services, including phone service, because that was so long ago they didn't even have cell phones yet. All right. So we took care of all their needs. And then at the end, at the end of the evening, and the chaplain... Be, 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 didn't tell me when I had to do this when I took on the job, but he said, oh, by the way, at the end of the night, you have to gather all these sailors together at the hospitality center, and you need to, you, you need to uh, uh, have a devotional with them. Well, uh, I was scared to death of public speaking. Now, it doesn't maybe seem to you a lot right now that, oh, you know, it just seems to come freely. You have to work at what you do when you get up in the pulpit. It doesn't always come freely, but like, like many of you, I think there are many of you who would, who would actually probably swallow your tongue if you had to come up here and do what I'm doing. It's, it's just because you're not used to public speaking. You have to get used to that, and I had to get used to it. So every night, I would give like a five to ten minute devotional, and oftentimes I would speak to these men, you must be born again, you must be born again. And these guys were all English as a second language, so I could keep it very simple, and that's how I learned how to public speak, speak in public. And so at the end of that devotional then, we had a prayer, and then I would gather the men back, 
in the van, and I remember one time I gathered them all back in the van, it was probably about eight to ten guys, and we're driving on this road back to the ship, and as we're driving along, these men are yakking to each other and conversing, and they're all loud, and all of a sudden they get just deathly silent. I'm like, what in the world's going on? I look back, and I, and I look forward, and there in front of me on the road was a dead body. And the thing is, is that there was a, there was a bridge that this road at one point went underneath, and young one young man, a couple hundred feet up, decided to take his life, and he jumped from the bridge, and he fell, and there was his body on the road, and there were a couple of police cars there already tending to the situation. And so I drove kind of slowly around them, and all you saw were these heads turn and look over like this. And I thought, this is right after I spoke on, on the fact that we're dead, and we need to come alive. And I, I, I don't know if it clicked with these men, but... Um, it may not be the best illustration, but I want you to visualize that, that that man on the road is what we all are in and of ourselves. We're, we're dead in our souls. We're dead on the inside. Hands may work, mouths may work, feet may work, but we're dead on the inside, and we need to be set free. And the way that we're set free from that, and the way that we come to life, is by means of the Spirit of God above. That's what Jesus teaches us here. Right? Now, um, I want to I uh, bring to your attention one other passage, and if the AV team could put that up, a passage from Ezekiel chapter 37. Oftentimes in the Bible, what you find is when Jesus teaches on a subject, he is actually, even though he is the Son of God, he draws from truths of the Old Testament and brings them forward. And one of the truths is what we find written 600 years earlier by the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel writes this, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause, notice, breath to enter you and you will live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. This image that we find in Ezekiel 37 is exactly what Jesus is teaching us when he says you have to be born again. Now think of that image of Ezekiel. Kids, think of this. Can you imagine this? Ezekiel 37, you got this valley. You have the prophet um, Ezekiel. He sees this in a vision. And you got this valley just full of bones. And the Bible says that they're very old bones. They're very dry. In other words, that's telling us that they have been dead for a long time. And then, though, the bones, they start to come alive. But how do they come alive? What does it say here? The Lord God says to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. The life that causes these bones to animate does not come from the bones themselves. They're dead. But these bones come alive through an outside source, through the very breath of God. Now, the word for breath here in the Hebrew language is ruach which is the same Old Testament word for spirit. 
So breath and spirit are interchangeable. It's the same thing with the Greek language, with the word pneuma used for the Holy Spirit in Jesus' teaching in John 3. Pneuma also means wind or spirit. So when you think of the Holy Spirit, kids, remember I said both power and life. Jesus, or God, is the one who breathes new life into these bones so that they come alive. He's the one who puts muscle and flesh and skin and brings life. That's what the Lord does for all those who are his. One final thing, and then I want to draw it to a close. I want you to take a look at verse 8, because I want you to see just also how mysterious is the work of the Spirit of God. We read this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. Now, some of you have, a, have a, um, a footnote there for the word wind. Also could be translated as spirit. Where the wind, blow, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Kids, um, when you play outside... Sometimes people do this. They lick their finger and they put it in the air to decide where the wind is coming from. I, I've tried that as a kid and I thought, this is kind of stupid. You can't tell. You know? <laughs> so, but as you're walking down the road, let's say you feel a wind coming either from this side or this side. Kids will say you're walking down the road and the wind comes from this direction, hits you in the face or hits you in the body and starts making cool the side of your body. Let me ask you this. Where did that wind come from? Where did it originate? Origin- where, where did it come from from the very beginning? Did it come from that direction? Oh, no, it came from that direction. But where did it begin? Did it begin over here? Did it begin? How far away? 100 yards away? Two miles away? Where did the wind come from? And once the wind hits you on this side of the body, where does it go after it hits you? Just straight in that direction? A lot of time, wind is like this. Hits you this, and then goes over there. In other words, we don't know. And we can't control the wind. We don't know where the wind has come from. We don't know where it's going. And Jesus says, this is exactly the way it is with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings life, but He brings it in a mysterious fashion. We don't know where the Spirit comes from, where He originates, where He is going, in whom He will work, in whom He will not work. That is the sovereign choice of God. But when the Spirit does work in those whom God calls His own and seeks out, pursues, and embraces with His Spirit, there is a coming to life. A movement, a transition from death to life. And that is a beautiful thing to behold. And every one of us here this afternoon is absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God for life. So I I end with this. It's a very simple question. Are you born again? Are you born again? Because the Bible always warns us against two things. Warns us against presumption, just thinking, oh, I'm, in, I'm here, I'm good to go, I'm in church, right? Where you think more of yourself than what you should. Beware of presumption, but also beware of a lack of confidence, a lack of assurance, where you're always wondering, am I a Christian? Am I not? Do I belong to Jesus? Do I not? Those are two opposite extremes. Nonetheless, the question can and should be asked, are you born again? And maybe you're here this afternoon, you go, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm born again? I'll leave you with this. A couple things to think about. 
There's that thing that's inside of us, uh, a moral barometer called the conscience. Conscience ever bother you? Sometimes you meet people in the world and their conscience rarely bothers them. Why is that? It's because they don't have a conscience? No, everybody's got a conscience. But some people suppress it. They just kind of push it down, push it down, push it down. So when, when, when their conscience bothers them, they just kind of make excuses for it, or they, they push it aside, they sweep it under the rug, as we say. What about you with your conscience? Does your conscience ever bother you? And if so, what do you do with it? You bring it to God? Same thing with your sin, which is a violation of the will of God, a refusal to do the will of God. What do you do with your sin? Do you excuse it? Do you push it under the rug? Do you you try not to face it and move on with life? Or with your sin, do you confess it to God and ask for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ with the understanding and the belief that what Jesus did on the cross, hey, he did it for me. I believe that. Are you able to say this afternoon that you, we, are more sinful than we ever dared imagine, but we are also more loved in Christ than we could ever dare hope. And also this. Ask yourself the question, what evidence do I give in my life that the Spirit is at work? That the Holy Spirit now only lives in me and works in me. Is the Holy Spirit leading my life Is the Spirit leading me to Christ? But also this, do I evidence in my life, albeit imperfectly, do I evidence in my life the fruit of the Spirit, such as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Do I reflect these basic things in my life? Are we going to do this perfectly? No, we're going to stumble all the time. But in our stumbling, are we always seeking God? Are we always seeking Christ? And are we praying for the Holy Spirit to guide our lives so that we may display that fruit in the eyes of God and before others? If you can say yes to these things, then praise God for that. That's the grace of God, and that's the Spirit of God at work in your life. And, and, and then, you know, have confidence that you rest in the sufficiency of Christ. Because Christ is a sufficient Savior. He's not half a Savior. He's a full Savior. And when He is at work in your life, you're going to know it, you're going to stumble here and there, but somehow God keeps picking you up, leading you by His Spirit, keeps leading you to Christ, keeps leading you to the cross. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. And if you say, quite honestly, I'm here this afternoon but I haven't given my life to Christ and I bear very little evidence that the Spirit of God is at work in me. And you say, what do I do? What do I do? What the Bible tells us to do. Come to grips with who you are. Come clean with God. Confess your sins in Jesus' name. Ask for forgiveness and pray for God's Spirit. That's simple. And at times that difficult. And I want, you to, I want to leave you with this verse where, where Jesus says, and I've heard it before, but you're going to hear it a lot over the years. Jesus says, if earthly fathers give good gifts to their children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You pray for the Spirit.
Pray for the Spirit. These are very personal matters. They're also very important matters. Beautiful passage. You must be born again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you call every one of us, O oh God, to be born again. Father, we can't do this ourselves. We don't make ourselves born again. That has to come from you. It has to come from above. We thank you, O oh God, in many, many of our lives here, Lord, you have demonstrated the reality of spiritual rebirth. Fact is, Father, we stumble, though. We're not always grateful. We, we sometimes live very inconsistent and hypoc hypocritical lives. And, Father, this is, this is true of me. This is true of leadership. It's true of every one of us, oh God. Nonetheless, Lord, you continue to pick us up. You continue to demonstrate that we have been regenerated, given rebirth, and for this we are very thankful. Continue to finish the work that you have begun in us, O oh God. And we pray that if there are some of us here this afternoon who have never experienced that rebirth, that this day would be the day that we pray urgently for the Spirit to open our hearts. As Lord, you open Lydia's heart in the book of Acts that you pour forth your grace and spirit in our lives, that we may not only be drawn to Christ, but we may walk the path of obedience and faith and joy that you've prepared for us. So, Lord, we bring this to you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.